163 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 31st of January, 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. How's it going? Graham. Hello, everyone. And Will. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's uh, that kind of feel at the moment, isn't it? But uh, we're going to have fun regardless. So we've got a mountain of feedback, and I think we're going to have no distractions this time. We're going to just do feedback and cover as much as we can and try and get caught up. You can send in your own feedback to show at latenightlinux.com, of course. And we've got an email from Plumchi. We were talking about schools a couple of episodes ago. And they say, as I work in a secondary school and am a strong believer in FOSS, I think I can give a few pointers as to why Linux is not mainstream in schools. One, cost, cost, cost. That's the first thing that comes to any IT decision, even though I've seen money wasted in the long run or thrown down the drain in other ways. Microsoft hands out Office 365 licenses out for free to education along with cloud storage. Schools wouldn't want the extra cost of on-prem servers and the security risk of running a next cloud instance unfounded or not. Yeah, um, they go on to say, uh, number two, Active Directory. While something like Ansible is available, it seems way overblown compared to something like Group Policy, where you manage settings with a GUI. Uh, Number three, Software. Unfortunately, things like Adobe Photoshop and Affinity Photo are still part of set curriculums, and staff use MIS like Capita Sims, which is certainly Windows only. And finally, a lack of skill. Most IT people who work in schools wouldn't know how to manage Linux servers, etc. It's a pretty grim picture, that, isn't it? You mispronounce one of those things. It's crapata, is how you actually say it. (laughs) (laughs) And Microsoft, I don't think, had a dollar symbol in it, the way you pronounced it. (laughs) Microshaft. I think I remember this conversation, and um, Will said a lot of this as to why people choose MS and why we were talking about our schools using Office 365. Yeah, it's a shame. It feels insurmountable with so many forces against switching to open source and open standards. I think we shouldn't chase them. I think we just need to keep doing what we're doing, keep making it better. And you won't convince somebody if they don't want to believe it or they don't want to try. Mm. There's just no point in doing it. It's like, you know, you have various YouTubers doing stupid stuff, people trying to pander to them and stuff. And yeah, in some cases, correctly, where, you know, things were edge case bugs, whatever, but we shouldn't try and follow that all the time because I think that's such a very dangerous way to to go because you'll spend so much time never being what they want because what they want is that Windows or that MS product or whatever, and you just won't be it ever. You know, I think that Google has actually done a really good thing here. And uh, hold on to your hate, failing for a second. Because where Microsoft had this monopoly and people learned to use Excel and Word, now there is enough Google intrusion into this space that they're also learning Google Docs and Google Sheets or whatever. And so there is a very slow shift from learning Word and Excel and PowerPoint to learning how to do spreadsheets, documents, and presentations, and more of a sort of software agnostic approach to that, which means that if you then show them LibreOffice, they will intuitively know how to use it because they've used a couple of alternatives in the past, and it won't just be this totally alien thing to them. Or is that just wishful thinking? The wishful thinking. You're on the right track, but I think Microsoft are making massive pushes back into that software-as-a-service, web-based document editing thing and 
they already have the monopoly and they already have full control of that market. So I think Google were starting to make headway there in schools, but I think Microsoft are just so incumbent that they will push them out, which is a real shame. I think that what we need is significant pressure from central government to say, we will not spend our tax money on proprietary software and we will only be using open source software from now on. And that ain't never going to happen. Well, I think we can only hope and maybe Apple and Google and other tech giants will make enough inroads in this that I'll end up being proven right and kids will be able to look at LibreOffice and know what to do with it. I believe children are our future. Yeah, teach them well and let them lead the way. So Peter rides in. Regarding your discussion on episode 158 about open source projects using Discord, you had noted you wish there was an open source software for forums and other online discussions. There is. Discourse is a wonderful tool and is open source. I run an instance of a small niche community and it's very popular. All content on the site can be read and searched without needing to log in. A complaint that was noted during your discussion. We average about 2,500 anonymous page views per day. Login is only required if you wish to comment or participate, and that is only to prevent spam. Yeah, Graham, why didn't you mention Discourse? I think I did mention Discourse. I'm pretty sure I did. Maybe you accidentally said Discord like everyone does. <laughs> could, it could be. Um, I did mention it, I think probably only in passing. But of course, um, yeah, I work on Discourse all day and it's a pretty good forum piece of software. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good option. And it's not, I, it's not quite the same as Discord, but it's quite a good kind of forum replacement. Like, I don't know, it's like a modern PHP BB. Isn't it quite heavy though? It is. It's a big piece of software. It does an awful lot. It's quite complex. You need a fairly beefy box to run it as well, is my understanding. I guess I've not tried it on a Raspberry Pi. I, I have run it without any problems on my own machine, and I'm sure that would be enough. But with how many users, that's the thing. When you're starting to get to 2,500 page views a day, and if you've got a few hundred active users, like I imagine the Ubuntu community discourse runs on, uh, you know, I don't think that's a Docker container on a $5 Linode you know, I'm guessing that's got some serious horsepower behind it. Yeah, it will have. And you're right. I think I, I don't think it could ever be described as like a low resource usage forum. But I, it, I don't think it's a disproportionately high usage either. Yeah, it is very feature rich. Yeah, and a lot of it is modular, so you can disable a lot of the thing, a lot of the things that you might not use. It's a good platform, and I have seen it used quite a lot, and it seems to be being used more and more, which is good. But it doesn't have that same. The thing that's good about Discord is the kind of threaded conversations that you can have, and Discourse doesn't quite get that right. No, that's why Mattermost comes in. Discourse is just a different product. It's just a different piece of software, a different approach. It's much more like an old PHP BB forum, but with more modern features, like being able to app people and stuff. It's, it's almost sort of halfway in between a forum and a, a chat service. And I think it just serves a different purpose. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it does fulfill your criterion of being free to read, you know, free as in freedom to read. Yes, it does. And I'm grateful for those projects that do run Discourse as their community forum. But I can see also that there isn't something that fulfills the Discord. Although there are, we we did discuss open source versions of Discord, which there are a couple, but they're not quite mature enough yet. 
Yeah, well, you use Mattermost as well at work, don't you? And we talked about that as being fairly close, but not 100%. Yeah, I mean, that's worked well for Canonical, I think. Transitioning from IRC, and a load of diehards on IRC, it's not really been a problem. Most people have been able to use it without difficulty. And having used Slack to some extent is that it doesn't, at least the way the Canonical use it, it hasn't descended into a million different groups for lots of sub discussions with subsets of other people so you're always pinged all the time we use it very much like irc so only in a limited kind of group sense all right you're not doing an apple employees and having a channel on the slack for how much you all earn and then moaning about it not that i've seen though no that's because they're talking about you (laughs) yeah there is one for making coffee So Fanto writes in and says, I'm really glad that Ubuntu is hiring a gaming guy. I'm barking up a tree half the time trying to convince people that running Linux isn't as hard as it used to be, and then it can do things that Windows can't or won't. But with the latest Proton experimental in Steam, my old laptop legitimately posts a higher 3D Mark score in 2110 than it does in Windows 10. Same machine, dual booted, better scores in Linux. I never thought I'd see the day. These days, I'm gradually moving away from gaming in Windows and have played some Monster Hunter World in Silverblue, although it was a mess to get it working. I think it's very impressive that Linux is posting better scores in 3D Mark. That's really encouraging. Uh, and getting a game to work in Silverblue is really encouraging. Uh, now, I can understand that Silverblue was probably a lot of the pain in the mess to get it working. But that, I think, is part of the problem with gaming on Linux, is that people are used to Windows where you double-click the installer and it just works. And if they've got to jump through hoops, a lot of people are going to be turned off by this. Nevertheless, I think seeing better scores in 3D Mark, for example, is going to convince enough people that um, that we should continue to fight the good fight. Yeah, I remember when Steam was first announced and available for Linux and the first days of Proton and everything... I remember saying that this comes down to frame rates and playability, and there are a lot of very serious gamers who care more about frame rates than anything else. And, you know, generally playing the game properly and smoothly and everything. But if you can get better performance on Linux, then there are some gamers who will come across for that reason. I said that years ago, and is that true? I don't know. I don't care because I'm getting to reap the benefits of it for all the games I've wanted (laughs) anyway, so whatever. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear if other people have had this similar experience where we are getting to the point where you can have a better time on Linux because that is not my understanding for many games. I understand that you're still going to have a better time on Windows. I'd love to commit to trying to dual boot my gaming PC with Linux and see which of the games that I play do actually work under Linux without too much fucking around. But I just don't think I've got the spare time to commit to trying it out. I can imagine losing hours to it, and I'm just not willing to take that risk at the moment. I think you should get a second hard drive for it. Don't dual boot. That's just evil and prone to failure. Yeah, that's good advice. That's good advice. I, at the moment, it's got a M2 SSD in it, uh, and I can't afford another one of those, but maybe I could just get a, a cheap and cheerful, like 128 gig, whatever the, the SSDs are, um, SanDisk ones. SATA. Yeah, one of those, and just shove that in and try it. Uh, I got a Crucial 480 for about 50 euro the other day, so there's good deals to be had. That sounds, yeah, that, okay, that sounds doable. All right, I'll, um, I'll, I'll get one ordered and let you know. Well, I look forward to that then. 
On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to latenightlinux.com slash support for more details there. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed and occasional early releases of episodes. And if you want to get in contact, show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash latenightlinux to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late-night-linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late-night-linux. So we've got a couple of emails about Termux, which is a way to run proper Linux on Android. Yeah, the first one was from Nathan, and he said, I appreciated the segment on Termux, and it matches my experiences quite a bit. One thing that I think is worth mentioning is that while it's cool to be able to install Ubuntu or Arch or whatever via and Linux, it's really not that necessary because Termux itself provides a pretty full distribution of packages. The package manager is called PKG, but it is in fact a front end to apps, which works exactly as you would expect it to. I did mention the packages in Termux, but they are quite limited. That's really why I installed and Linux to be able to do all the other things that I wanted to do. It's pretty good for normal. I do mention that it's good for SSH and it's got Git and it's got uh, Vim as well, but doesn't have Vim with plugins and stuff like that. Okay, so it's kind of basic functionality, but if you want the real full fat, then you've got to go over the and Linux route. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's a good selection of basic packages, and you can. And he's right. Ninety nine percent of people, it'll provide everything they need. And Nathan continues. Another thing of interest is that VNC isn't the only way to get a desktop with Termux. There are a couple of X-Server apps on the Play Store, and Joe, you'll be happy to hear that I did manage to install and run XFCE in Termux using one of them. It's absolute garbage to try and use it on that size screen, but if you're not at all concerned with usability, it's a neat trick to show your Linux enthusiast friends. So XFCE in a nutshell, then. <laughs> oh, that's libelous, borderline libelous, Phelan. But uh, yeah, I need to try this out. Maybe on a tablet or something that is going to be a little bit more usable. Maybe get a Bluetooth mouse or something. But that's good to know that you can actually get a proper X server running. And then finally, he says, I actually tried using a full development environment in Termux and only ran into a few pain points. GCC and Clang are both available and you can compile a lot of small projects easily, but I had one where the make file tried making symlinks as part of the build process, which failed because the underlying file system is VFAT, which doesn't support symbolic links, instantly reminding you that you are not, in fact, able to harness the full power of Linux. Not due to any inherent hardware limitations, of course, but due to some frankly difficult to understand choices made when designing Android. Yeah, and from my memory, I think that's how I, why I couldn't get the X over apps running, because I think you might need a rooted phone or device to be able to do that. 
Uh, right, not a problem for me, but yeah, yeah you're stuck, aren't you? Hmm. We also heard from Will, who said, Google is stepping up enforcement of app security guidelines, including at the runtime and SE Linux level. In particular, there is a policy that app files must be write or execute, which breaks Termux's model of downloading packages in the app. For now, Termux has deprecated its Play Store packages and only promotes F-Droid for distribution. Also, it targets an old Android SDK level, which presumably newer phones will eventually not support but at least Android 11 and 12 still support it. I used to use it, but I settled into a more transactional mindset regarding my phone. Just use it for what it's good at, and leave general computing to other devices, so I've not used it for years. That sounds a bit disappointing then. It seems like you might not be able to do this for that much longer then, Graham. Yeah, it's unclear. I think I did mention that you could only install it through F-Droid, and it was a bit disappointing, I imagine, for the project, because they made a little bit of money off selling widgets, that gave you kind of quick access to some Termux functionality, all of which was available from F-Droid anyway. My phone's pretty new. It's not running Android 13, um, but I'm running Android 12, and it's running 100% on that. And also, I do agree with Will's kind of conclusion that that was really what my experiment was about, really, to see if it could work as a portable laptop. And I was surprised that it could maybe do in the future, because I think that might work. But that convergence dream Mm. is still a dream. As you said previously, you need a big screen, you need a keyboard and a mouse, and then you may as well take a laptop. Yeah. Still a cool project, though. Okay, Luke writes to us. I just wanted to share a few things about using 32-bit hardware today. For higher-end, more recent stuff like my ThinkPad T60 with a Core Duo T2300 with 3 gigabytes of RAM... MX runs great and is updated, being based on Debian. For boxes that don't run smoothly, Antix or Bunsen Labs are good options. MX also has a Fluxbox option that is snappier than XFCE and KDE options. All good info, Luke, but ultimately it's the applications that bog it down rather than the uh, environment, I think. But Luke also asked an interesting question. Unrelated, do you know of any distros tailored for offline use besides Endless? Their past business model puts me off. And I couldn't think of one. Can you lot? No, it's been a long time since I've had to think about it. <laughs> wow, that's really made me think. I just kind of assume I'd be able to get by if I didn't have any connectivity, but that's the wrong assumption. The only thing I can think of really is Raspberry Pi OS because mm. there's a lot of stuff there, educational tools and coding tools to get you going. But it's not the same kind of offline as Endless, which has no. got loads of applications and wikipedia and all that i've got to say of of some of the distros that we've tried out endless was actually really impressive Mm. because i tried a few things in that that i wouldn't have bothered even looking for online and purely by the fact that they were there when right i watched this yeah and they had all those videos and stuff like that it's actually it's kind of cool it's almost worth that massive download (laughs) it is almost worth that massive download (laughs) so yeah, I don't think we can think of one. So if you're listening and can think of one, then definitely let us know. Show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, we had a couple of emails that are related and touch on something that's a bit close to home for one of us. <laughs> Mike said, There are two main reasons why I use Mint over Ubuntu when setting up Linux for friends and family. First is that it's easier for people coming from Windows, as you discussed. The other reason is my sense that Canonical are making design choices that favor paying enterprise customers over independent home users. Chief among these is the commitment to snaps. 
which seems to be driven largely by the need to provide ongoing support for numerous LTS releases, which are all at different levels for kernels and key libraries. But, in my view, snaps add unnecessary bulk, complexity, and potential points of failure for the rest of us, and I'd rather not have to rely on them. Mint's decision to avoid snaps is therefore a big plus for me. And Christian also sort of chimes in. He says, your discussion about Flatpak, AppImage, and Snap in episode 154 was interesting. Just recently, I had a deeper look at those alternatives and came to the conclusion that they all do a mediocre job in terms of end-user experience. And he links to that, which we'll provide a link to. I'd love to hear what you think about Canonical's decision to operate Snapcraft in a closed way. Don't get me wrong, it offers a comprehensive number of applications, and we'll need this for having broader Linux desktop acceptance, but Snap performance in terms of application speed is a pitta. I presume he means the bread. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's a pitta bread, not a pain in the arse or anything. No. In addition to this, nobody knows how content is scanned for malware and having to run Firefox from Snap in the future is just not a very good decision. Flatpak is decentralized per definition. Having this option would increase acceptance for Snap, in my humble opinion. So, (laughs) what do we think about Canonical's decision to operate Snapcraft in a closed way? Graham, you work on that team, so uh, (laughs) defend it. So yeah, I do work on the, the SnapD engineering team. So I'm not an advocate for Snap, um, and I really don't want to be an apologist for Snap. What I would love for Snap to do is be clearly good enough for people to want to use it and to choose to use it. And I think that's something that Canonical has to kind of do itself. That's the problem that we have to solve. We have to make it clearly better and make people clearly want to choose it. In terms of the openness, a lot's been written about this. Alan Pope wrote about it. I will say, personally, Canonical is unlike almost any other company in doing everything open source. And if you want to see the quality of the engineering that goes into something like SnapD, you can. It's all on GitHub. Every single pull request, every single conversation that goes around the security and the motivation and the reasoning behind that pull request, there's nothing hidden. It's all there in the pull requests as it is for Snapcraft, the build tool. The store, that's a well-known story. I don't have any more information on that. I can see that there are advantages in uh, Flatpak being federated and it's a very compelling idea. And Canonical has, has said why it isn't doing that or why it, why it hasn't done so, so far. But yeah, ultimately, I think it's remarkable the quality of engineering that companies like Canonical does in the public domain as open source software that anybody can take and learn from. And I just want Snap to be clearly... So there isn't any argument or debate, or it's just another part of the options that we have in that it does a certain job and it does it well and people choose it for those reasons rather than for any other reason. The only real closed part about it is the store, right? Which is essentially just a web server. Okay, maybe a little bit more, but you could roll your own Snap Store if you could be asked. And people have done it in the past and those projects have not stuck around for whatever reason. But you can just wget or curl a snap and then snap install it and you could do that with a few shonky bash scripts and and just an nginx web server if you really wanted to yeah you can and you can download the snaps and you can build them yourself and do whatever you want and we don't do this to valve with the steam store and all kinds of other people that we accept in our day-to-day lives and also i don't want to like be the one standing up for canonical and its choices over this 
ultimately it is, as you say, hugely an open source project. The whole SnapD part, the whole SnapCraft build part is completely in the open and open source. And that's like some of the best engineers in the world that I've worked with had the, you know, I don't want to be an advertis an advertisement for it, but it is the truth. They're brilliant people and they're working earnestly for an open source company um, because they believe in what they're doing. However, Flatpak has one asterisk and the, there's a huge asterisk there and that is that it's one on the desktop for enthusiasts. The kind of people who listen to podcasts, go to Reddit, care about whatever software they're running. For those people, Flatpak has won, as far as I can see. Clearly in the IoT space and the millions of people who use an Ubuntu desktop and don't go to Reddit or listen to podcasts, they're happily using Snaps, probably not even knowing they're using Snaps. And so Snaps have won in that aspect. But in terms of the people who care and purport to care and make noise about how much they care, Flatpak has won. I think neither of them have won. I think they've both lost because they've both been mired in <laughs> <laughs> they've both been mired in such controversy that I don't think that they've really painted themselves or their distros of choice in a good light. I think people have been left confused about why they even exist. They've been cross about decisions that have been made and they've been left feeling that actually things were fine the way they were and this entire thing has been a waste of time. And I'm not suggesting that that is the correct answer to this, that that, that neither of these um, formats have no purpose because they do have a purpose and I understand the technical benefits of both of them. But I think as far as the public are concerned, they've both been a massive waste of time. Why don't you all use AppImage? <laughs> <laughs> Phelim, do you use any snaps or flat packs? I don't use any flat packs. By default, I kind of consider that to be a known project, and that is wrong, but it doesn't feel like it is wrong. That's the weird thing about it. It feels like everybody uses snaps as a pinata, but I feel that I don't overly like the way that almost all of the main developers are known developers. And it's not like I don't trust them, but it doesn't feel like a properly managed independent project it feels like a known project that has been foisted upon everybody else and again completely incorrect probably but it that's that's just the opinion i get from it most likely the same opinion that people think that oh canonical's evil and the snaps are, are pure evil to be putting on your machine when in reality as graham says it's all open source now the only thing purely because kde neon is based on an Ubuntu base, the snaps are already there. And I've got one or two, but I really, I don't use a lot of them. I use apps for most of my software. And I was going to, like, I listened to Downtime there where George Castro was on. He was talking about, oh, you know, don't let root in your system. I thought, oh, you know, I've only made two outside applications and that's TeamViewer if I have to do remote support for some clients and Telegram. And I thought, well, I could use the snap of Telegram. And I went and looked at it, but the version was 3.4.2 two or something like that whereas it's 3.4.8 is the the one that i've got from my package i'm thinking geez what's the point if it's not actually up to date i mean yes there's obviously a security point but really if you want the software to be secure you'd hope that it was like galloping along at the same rate as the the main executable he did make that good point though didn't he about at install time you are giving that company root on your machine essentially giving them access to everything including your ssh keys and god knows what 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's that's why I would have thought, well, okay, yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I don't agree with his uh, immutable file system love. That's complete nonsense. But <laughs> yeah, uh, containerized apps for non-distro-specific ones, yeah, probably a good idea. But that's the thing. I don't use many outside of my distro. And if there is one to be used, like Slack, I never use that app because I, I didn't like it. It was a big Electron heffin mess and i use that in a, a tab in my browser because at least i know that the browser's getting support and updates and stuff yeah well, i talked about this i use slack in the browser for what i need it for but if i have to do a call then i would snap install it and then i would snap remove it immediately afterwards ironically one of the snaps i have is the microsoft teams one but it's not the official one because that's a load of shite it's it's a, a non-official one that actually is essentially an electron app and it actually works better all right right well we'd better get out of here then we'll be back next week when who knows what we'll be talking about but until then i've been joe i've been phelan i've been graham and i've been will see you later